So we are going to go back and continue studying the Gospels. I think we are ready. We are ready to go. And any folks that are online can send us a question if you want to chat in a question. Uh, that would bring more excitement to our class. <laughs> and your comments and questions are always uh, always welcome. So let's pray. Our Father, uh, we are grateful to be able to study the things that we're looking at tonight, especially your resurrection. Uh, what, a, <clears throat> what a wonderful thing that is. Our hope is uh, so secure because <clears throat> your Son has risen uh, from the grave even after taking all of our sins upon himself. Uh, what a testimony to the power of his life and death. And we just praise you for that. We pray that you would better equip us to share that message with others and to make your son known. Uh, we pray for more opportunities to do that. We also ask for your help uh, with our children to teach them the gospel. And we, oh Lord, we ask for your outpouring of your Holy Spirit on our own lives, but on our ministries and on our witness. Lord, uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are just going through the gospel uh, in order, and your comments and questions are always welcome uh, as, we, as we go. And where we are tonight, let's see the forest from the trees here a little bit. Um, we are Jesus' triumph over the grave, his resurrection, and here's kind of our outline that we're using as we study the resurrection uh, the early events on Sunday morning, we have a chart. I'll show you that here in a second if you haven't seen the chart. And here's where we stopped the last Wednesday. The, the women encounter Jesus, and that's where we stopped in that section. And tonight we're going to try to get through, well, we, we, we'll try, but we won't get through all five of these, but we're going we're gonna to try uh, the guards report back to the chief priest. We want to look at that passage. Uh, Peter and John's visit to the tomb. Uh, Jesus' interaction with Mary Magdalene. And then Jesus' interaction with Cleopas and another disciple when they're on their way to Emmaus. And then uh, the group is comparing notes Sunday night and they're beginning to believe Jesus, uh, Jesus has risen we can review a little bit by looking at this chart that we have here. And I made the chart for myself as much as for you all. And I think you can see that. I might be able to make that a little bigger. Can you guys see that? Yeah. So there's a whole lot going on on that Sunday between the city and the tomb over here. Okay. So we start out very early in the morning. We'll just walk through this real quickly. That's very early in the morning. We got Mary, Magdalene, Salome, Mary, James' mother, and Johanna. They leave right, they leave almost at dark. And the record tells us they leave very early in the morning and they have a bunch of spices and they go over here. They go over to the tomb. 
And when they arrive at the tomb, they notice the stone is rolled away. And at that point, immediately, this purple here is Mary Magdalene. She doesn't hang around. She notices the stone has been rolled away. She thinks the, gra the grave has been robbed. And she immediately begins running back toward the city to tell Peter and John that the grave has been compromised. The other three ladies actually stay there and they look into a tomb and an angel appears to them at the, at the site. And the angel then, so the A on this diagram means angel. What do you think J means? It means Jesus, okay, an appearance of Jesus. A is an appearance of an angel. So the three ladies, the three ladies actually interact with the angel and and he gives them a message and tells them to go back and tell my disciples that Jesus is risen and he is going before them to Galilee and to go to Galilee and there they will see him. And so as they're on their way back to the city, Jesus appears to these ladies. This, they are the first witnesses of Jesus being alive. These three ladies. They're the first witnesses. So, Mary Magdalene has already made it back to the city. These ladies are heading back. And Mary Magdalene rounds up Peter and John. And Peter and John begin running to the tomb. And we're going to look at that tonight. Peter and John begin running to the tomb. And Mary Magdalene also heads back to the tomb, but she's not running anymore now. She's greatly distressed, but she is also heading back to the tomb. We know that she headed back to the tomb because she encounters an angel and Jesus at the tomb. Okay, so she was there very early, back to the city. She goes back to the tomb. The other ladies are heading into town uh, to find other disciples and tell them. Peter and John triggered by Mary Magdalene, run out here to the tomb and they don't see angels or Jesus. And all they encounter is the empty tomb. And we'll look at that tonight. And, and they go into the tomb. And so, but they turn around and head back to the city also. Okay. And uh, uh, so they head back to the city. And then later on, when Mary makes it back to the tomb later, she's by herself, and this time there are two angels in the tomb, and this time she actually looks in the tomb, goes in the tomb, and then she meets two angels. They tell her Jesus is alive, and Jesus appears to her. And Jesus talks with her, and we're going to look at that tonight if we get that far, and she goes back into the city also. Now, as they're in the city, sometime during the day, the ladies are bringing their reports to the men, to the apostles. And all four of these ladies bring their reports to the apostles and other disciples. And that's where Luke says, basically, you ladies are insane. <laughs> and they will not believe any of the witness of the four ladies. And so, all the men don't believe the witness of the four ladies. And uh, <clears throat> uh, later, 
probably early afternoon, Cleopas and another disciple leave the city and they head to Emmaus in the afternoon. They're heading to Emmaus instead of Galilee. Jesus said, go to Galilee, there you will see me. They head to Emmaus instead. Now, this is where it's really difficult in the text. I'm not sure how to resolve a few conflicts in the text. But Luke says, after they get the report from the ladies and none of them believe, Peter goes off to the tomb. It's really hard to get Luke's Peter on his way to the tomb and John's reference of Peter on the way to the tomb. It's really hard to make those two seem like one event. Um, now, when Peter is on, he's leaving, supposedly going to the tomb, and I just put here, is this the second trip or the first trip? Um, there's difficulties either way, but sometime that afternoon, probably, Jesus appears to Peter by himself. This is an appearance of Jesus with Peter by himself. It's probably sometime Sunday afternoon. Peter ends up back in the city and in the evening. In the evening, we find them all together in the evening. Okay, so Peter's back in the city. Jesus has appeared to him. So that's the fourth appearance of Jesus at that point. Well, Cleopas and, and the other, they make, it, they make it to Emmaus right around sunset. And Jesus has appeared to them on the road, but they don't know it. And during dinner, when Jesus breaks bread, Jesus reveals himself too. They turn around and begin running back to Jerusalem. They got seven miles to go. They go back into the city. By then, it must be like nine o'clock at night. Okay, so if they were at Emmaus, which is seven miles, seven miles from uh, Jerusalem, and it was dark, when they, and so they got seven miles to come back. So it's probably, I don't know, nine o'clock on Sunday night. It, it's, it's into Sunday night when they get back. And they, they all end up together and they're beginning to say, Jesus has risen and he has appeared to Peter and so forth. So that's, that's the way, the way it somewhat went down. And so we're backing up and looking at each of those. Uh, some of those individual sections. If you have the earlier notes, all there's not there's 19 numbers here. There's a paragraph attached to every one of those numbers in the earlier in the earlier notes. So, does anybody have any questions about this high speed uh, high speed review? One quick one. Did you already cover Jesus' appearance to Peter? Uh, were you here last week? Yes. Well, we're going to talk about that a little more. We know we know very little about that, right? I mean, all we know is he appeared to Peter, and and in First Corinthians, we kind of know that from First Corinthians fifteen. So we don't know what their interchange was, but we're pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that. Peter was the first apostle that Jesus appeared to. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that what, that is the case. And I have something to say about that uh, when, when we get a little further. So over on page 239, 
Uh, let's talk about the guards that are going back into the city. I didn't put that on the diagram, but Matthew 28 and verse 11 through 15, you see, uh, this is right after Jesus appeared to those ladies. Uh, Rejoice. So they came and held, they held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, this is very early in the morning now, okay? This is, er- this is early in the morning. Uh, then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, while they were going, going back to the city, Matthew is the only one that tells us, Behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So let's just, we'll highlight a few things here. So Matthew gives us the final scene of the leading Jews in Jerusalem. I think that in itself is kind of significant. Matthew turns the spotlight. Here's what, here's what all the disciples and everybody have been doing. And then he turns the spotlight over here. Here's what the Jews are doing. And this is the final scene. And they are frantic to discredit the message that Jesus has risen. But due to the incontestable nature of Jesus' miracles, including which miracle? Of who? Uh, Well, okay, but back up. I mean, think of the Jews. You know, the Jews thought, well, we're done with this guy, and now they got a report from these soldiers, hey, man, the tomb's empty. And and, and." so what are they going to flash back to? Something that happened a few weeks earlier. Or, or, what's that? Absolutely, that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. So they're really not surprised. They can't possibly be surprised. Having witnessed all of Jesus' miracles, knowing that he raised Lazarus from the dead, you know, you think maybe that, you think maybe that if anybody's gonna rise from the dead, it's gonna be this guy? And sure enough, that's what they're thinking. There's nothing they can do about it. They, they, they believe he's out of the tomb. They believe he rose from the dead. I have no doubt about that. They believe he worked all those miracles too. So, so they are, they are frantic and uh, some, not all of the guard, report to the chief priest and uh, whether that's a Roman guard or whether that is a temple guard. We discussed that some weeks ago. I won't repeat that. D.A. Carson says at this point, the plan devised by the chief priests and elders proves to Matthew that their pious promises to believe if Jesus would only come down from the cross were empty. Remember how they mocked him? Come down from the cross and we will believe you? Well, do they believe him now? Of course not. Of course not. 
The very thing the guard was supposed to prevent against has happened. The chief priest's story shows the desperation. If the guards were asleep, how would they know it was the disciples who stole the body? <laughs> the disciples came and stole the body while we were asleep. You know, <laughs> you know these guys, you think they'd be smarter than that, but... <laughs> But uh, that, that's, a, that's desperation. Now, of course, none of the disciples had any motivation or ability to defeat the guard and steal the body. They weren't even thinking about him r- resurrecting. So they weren't, they weren't even thinking about that. So they had no motivation to fabricate a plot to rob the tomb. Not only that, How can, I don't know how many guards were there, four guards, six guards, how can they all fall asleep at the same time? Such that none of them say, hey Joe, wake up, man, you're going to be (laughs) court-martialed. You know, I mean, you got like four or five guards, and they're supposed to keep one another awake, right? I mean, these guys must be really doofs (laughs) If, if there's four or five of them, and they all fall asleep. And not a single one of them wakes up, you know. It, it's, you know, it's crazy. So, uh, and we're not going to, you know, there's a whole lot of things done about the evidence, the, the evidence, you know, of the re- resurrection. Those kind of things come into it. So, um, the other thing is the tomb being empty by itself doesn't prove a resurrection, but the fact that the chief priests and the rulers cannot produce a body, well, that speaks volumes. You know, it was a significant crime to rob a tomb. Okay? Both, in, you know, both, both amongst the Jews as well as the Romans. That was a significant crime. And you better believe it, if those chief priests had evidence that the disciples had robbed the grave, they would have prosecuted those disciples. No doubt about it. And they had no evidence that the disciples robbed the grave. They could have prosecuted them. Not only that, the disciples don't leave town. I mean, 40 days from now at Pentecost, where are they preaching the resurrection? Right in the middle of Jerusalem is where they begin to preach the resurrection, where everything can be verified. It's not like they went to some far distant land and told people there was this guy over here that rose from the dead. They began preaching the resurrection right in Jerusalem. And all the Jews needed to do was to produce the, produce the body to kill Christianity at that point. And, and of course, they, they can't produce the body. Uh, so... Um, yeah, they began preaching right in Jerusalem. So, bribing the soldiers, bribing the soldiers testifies to the fact that the soldiers' report was true. Okay? They had to bribe the soldiers to bear false witness. Okay? They really wanted to shut up the witnesses, correct? Shut up. (laughs) We don't want you guys going home and telling your families what you saw, what you witnessed. So they bribed the soldiers to keep their mouths shut. So, and the chief priest 
plan. They have a plan regarding Pilate, and this is what they said. And if this comes, if this comes to the governor's ears, they're talking to the soldiers, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. You know what that likely is? That's likely another bribe. We'll appease Pilate. How are they going to do that? Well, they're going to make a sweet deal. They're going to bribe him. They're going to, you know, we'll appease him. That's probably a bribe, is what they're talking about doing. So, so they, the soldiers, took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day, Matthew 28, 15. So those references are always interesting. Until, you know, they're historical about Scripture. Um, where is it here? Yeah. yeah. This, this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So, so Matthew is writing his gospel, what? Probably in the mid-60s, maybe? I don't have all the dates memorized, but somewhere probably in the mid-60s is when Matthew made this statement. So, um, you know, we're 30 years down the road here from, you know, from the resurrection, and, but that, that lie is still being circulated among the Jews. It's interesting, that statement is still being circulated among the Jews <clears throat> when Matthew writes, uh, writes his, his gospel. I want to quote one paragraph here and then we'll move on from this one unless you have thoughts or questions. R.T. France summarizes this uh, really well. I like how he wrote this uh, <clears throat> regarding the, the chief priest. Quote, Their careful plans to get rid of the new Galilean movement unraveled have unraveled and they are left with an embarrassing failure to explain. The best thing they can do is to concoct a cover-up story backed by bribes to the guards and, if necessary, also to the governor. So the last view we have of Jerusalem is of its leaders engaged in a sordid, face-saving exercise while the women are summoning Jesus' disciples to meet their risen Lord back in the home territory of Galilee. What Francis keyed in on is what, how Matthew wrote this uh, right, right up here, how Matthew wrote this. Now, while they were going, while the women are going to tell the disciples that Jesus is risen, and go meet in Jerusalem, the soldiers are going to the chief priest. Meeting Galilee. I, I'm sorry, to meet him in Galilee. The, uh, the soldiers, the so, at the very time the women are in the city, telling the disciples that Jesus has re- rose, the soldiers are meeting with the chief priest. All of that's happening on Sunday morning. So they're plotting to squelch the message, and the ladies are running around the city, rounding everybody up, telling them that Jesus has risen. It's just, that's happening, virtually that's happening at the same time, um, that Sunday 
Sunday morning. So, I don't know. I, I think that's pretty cool. That, 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 you know, he, Matthew gives us those two scenes right there on Sunday morning. And uh, <clears throat> so, okay. Any comments or, or, or questions about that between all of those guys? Okay. Okay, let's, let's go on here. And let's now look at, we're backing up in time a little bit here, but let's look at Peter and John's visit to Jesus' tomb early that morning. And it's John that gives us the detail there. So John chapter 20 and verse 3. Okay, this is after Mary Magdalene notified them Right. Let's. I'll back up to connect it for you. Uh, then she. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, "They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him." Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple. We believe that is John, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. That's John. And he, John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the handkerchief which had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, that's John, went, no, yeah, then the other disciple came to the tomb first, that would be John, uh, went in also, and he saw and believed, for as yet, They did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So we're going to spend a little time here. There's there's this is a lot of significant stuff. Uh, Some of it some of it a bit hard to understand, but we'll we'll do our best on it. So Mary Magdalene ran back to the city located Peter. That's early Sunday morning. They have taken away the Lord from the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and John run toward the tomb. John gets ahead of Peter, and there has been a lot of discussion about what does this mean? You know, why does why does John make a point to tell us that John that John outruns Peter and stuff? And uh, there's a few uh, things that have been said that are that I don't think are true. They're they're kind of they're just kind of interesting. Uh, so here are two stretch interpretations. Uh, <clears throat> I never have any of those. <laughs> here are two stretch interpretations. Uh, <clears throat> the description of the beloved's disciple's speed, swifter than Peter, is a veiled way of insisting that in the Johannian church, John must be accorded greater preeminence than Peter. Okay, a lot of discussion. Was there a Matthean church? Was there was there a Johannian church? 
you know, in the early church, there's a lot of discussion about that. So, so this proves if you're, you know, that Peter can't come exercising authority over your Johannian church because, uh, because of this. Uh, here, 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 here's another one. Um, uh, let's see, I gotta find it the right place in my notes. <laughs> let's see. Another holds that Peter represents Jewish Christianity and the beloved disciple represents Gentile Christianity. The Jewish church is first on the scene. Peter enters the tomb first. Okay. So I don't think that's the explanation. The best explanation I've heard is, is what, um, what we are seeing here is simply the author's vivid memory of the details of the event as he recalls the event. It's like when you witness something that is massively significant and profound, you just, you can just see it again. Okay, you all have that experience. I bet you can draw up memories right now where you just see it. Okay? And so that's probably what John, you know, John has all this vivid memory of how it unfolded and he, and he puts it out there. Um, so, okay, now let's go on. John likely did not see the face cloth initially when, when, he just, when he just looked in and didn't go into the tomb. It was rolled up by itself, separate from the linen cloth. Clearly, John perceives these details to be important, but their exact meaning isn't clear. Someone has handled the face cloth, rolled it, and set it in a place separate from the body wrappings. J.R. Michaels describes the scene, well, quote, the Lord is indeed missing, but who would carefully unwrap a body, separate the head cloth, rolling, it, rolling, the, rolling the ladder up by itself, and then make off with the naked and mutilated body? It makes no sense. And yet, we are not told what conclusion Peter drew from what he saw. His silence here is quite consistent with Luke's description of him as, quote, amazed at what had happened. It's not clear that Peter was thinking of resurrection at that time. Likely not. He will later that day reject the testimony of the women. Correct? We got, we got the order of these events so later that day, he's going to reject the testimony of the women even after he's seen the tomb. So, so, he, so he's amazed, but we don't know specifically. Peter steps out of the tomb and John enters, and he saw and believed. Well, saw what? Well, apparently the same things that Peter saw when he actually entered the tomb. And what did Peter see? Well, Peter saw the linen cloth lying by themselves and a face cloth that had been around his head, not lying by the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. So he saw and believed, but believed what? 
Was John an unbeliever prior to this? Well, no, not in the, not in the Jewish sense of being a faithful Israelite. He was not an unbeliever in that sense. No, but did John at this moment have a full belief in the bodily resurrection before actually seeing Jesus? Not likely. But the phrase is telling us that John became convinced of something at this point on the basis of what he saw. That's what the text is. So what did he see? Well, Jesus is gone and not because of Mary's suggestion that someone took the body or grave robbers hit the tomb. That's not the site of a grave that's been robbed. So John sees this scene, all this orderly scene, and, it, and, and it's not grave robbers. I, I, I'm sure they concluded this, this, this isn't a grave robbery, what they're seeing. So, so we might think this is when John believed fully in the resurrection, but that is unlikely, especially because of the next verse in the passage. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So you see the passage in John uh, puts those together. Uh, right, you know, then the other disciple, it put, right there, okay. The other disciple went into the tomb also and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So whatever he's believing at this point is not that the, the bodily resurrection. He's believing something else at this point. And it seems like John is kind of recording for us the process in which they finally came to actually believe in the resurrection. And he's even describing his own experience. I mean, he's describing his own experience here, right? We're reading the Gospel of John, and John is describing his own experience on that morning. And, and so, so he, he believes something. And one suggestion of what John believed at this point is that Jesus has departed and gone to be with the Father, just as he said he was going to do. And I think that idea has some merit. If you read John 15, 16, and 17. And you read the number of times Jesus... They ask him, where are you going? Where are you going? Where? I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the Father. I mean, that's only, let's see, four days earlier, right? That was at the, at the Passover meal. Now we're Sunday. So four, four, days, four days earlier, right? Yeah. Yeah, Thursday evening, they're at the Passover meal... And, and that evening they have John 14, 15, 16, and 17. And over and over again, Jesus tells them he's going to be with the Father. So that's a, that wasn't my brilliant idea. <laughs> I, I, I forget who. who. So, so I can't take credit of saying that's possibly what, what John maybe was thinking. He's going he's to be with the Father. So... So let's go a little further on this. Uh, 
John's explanatory statement here is very significant uh, that he insert, he interrupts the narrative here, right? He interrupts the story to put this statement in. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again. And I found no really satisfying understanding of why John interrupts the narrative to give this explanatory comment. But it has something to do with the process of believing. The point seems to be that John believed, especially when he wrote this, that John believed something on the basis of seeing the empty tomb left in its certain condition, rather than believing or understanding what he saw through the lens of Scripture. Okay. So, it, that, that's, that's what it seems to be, that, that, to be that John believes something on the basis of seeing the empty tomb left in a certain condition. So, John may be telling his readers his initial faith was good, but not complete. His faith needs to be informed by the Old Testament Scripture, which took place during the 40 days between Christ's resurrection and ascension. That's what ultimately made the resurrection make sense. The Old Testament Scripture. You see that? I think that I think that's somewhere in the ballpark at least. For as yet they did not know. See, they're not understanding the resurrection because they're not knowing the scripture that he should rise again from the dead. Once they get connected with the scripture that he should rise again from the dead, bingo, light goes off, it makes sense. Are you um, indicating then that the, based on even what Jesus says to Thomas in a very few verses later, that that um, Jesus emphasizing that those are they are more blessed who believe without seeing, yes, is is what's going on in even John seeing the risen Lord and in the forty days and going to Galilee and seeing Jesus cooking the fish and all that they still had to have. Old Testament scripture to inform them of what's happening. I, I, I don't know if, I, if I'm implying that or not. I, I, think, I think that is possible. I mean, th- there was difficulty beyond Sunday in them actually really believing all that, all that had un- unfolded. And, and we know, of course... This interpretation here lines up with Jesus' teaching to the men on the road to Emmaus. Correct? They're not believing in the resurrection either. And what does Jesus say the problem is? The problem is not that they didn't see Jesus yet themselves. They had the testimony of the women. Okay? The problem they had is they were foolish and they didn't know the Old Testament Scriptures or they would have gotten it. So there seems to be some parallel between what John is saying. Give the microphone to Nathaniel, um, and and what um, that one of the implications of what you just said would mean that everyone was foolish that believed in God because no one saw this coming, and w- about the resurrection. And w- one of the reasons why I, I want to emphasize 
the Jewish people believed in the resurrection. That wasn't the question. They were interpreting. Right. They weren't expecting one man to rise in the middle of history before the general general resurrection. So it's it's also an issue of wrong interpretation. They all believe that the Bible tells talks about the resurrection. I mean, we we already know that from right. Jesus, Lazarus, and Mary. But no one seems to have gotten it. So in that sense, Jesus's critique of those two disciples, which is correct. That seems to be a, a critique of everyone that believed in God up to this point. I mean, do we know anyone that got the resurrection? Before? I mean, is it possible that God didn't want them to get it until Jesus actually rose? Because no one gets it. There's no example of it. Um, is, there some, is there a reason, perhaps, that God somehow revealed that or, or had it hidden until it actually happened? And, they, and then, like a, then they started to understand when they encountered the risen Christ? I'm just asking because I don't know. Well, I know that none of them get it, but it seems to me Jesus' correction of those guys on the road is not giving them an excuse. I mean, those are his words. You're you're foolish and you're slow to believe. Well, then about, that would, about both, about by implication, the that would that would apply to everyone. Then everyone that believed in God to this point, because no one that we know of saw the resurrection coming. Right? I mean, we well, do but, have a couple of statements in the Old Testament, but none of the disciples saw this, so they were also foolish. So Jesus just maybe it's maybe he's just saying you're all slow to really understand or grasp it. I don't know. Well, but they did believe in the resurrection. They just didn't see it coming the way it unfolded. That's they, what I'm trying they to believed in a resurrection in general. Right. They didn't believe in a suffering Messiah. So maybe we should right. separate those two. Yeah. I mean, he certainly, uh, he certainly corrected them for you know. He says, "Does not was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer before he entered his glory?" So, I mean, if that implicates all of them being wrong, then, then I would say they're all wrong. <laughs> I well, mean, I just want to make sure that's what you're saying, because that would, to me that would be the implication. Because no, no one, we, we have no evidence that I know of in the Gospels that suggests to us that anyone was expecting Jesus to rise from the dead no, we before, don't. The, before the resurrection, right. or the general right. resurrection. I'm just thinking out and, loud. And you don't think Jesus thought that was a deficiency in them? I'm wondering, um, well, he's wiser than us, obviously, but I'm wondering if no one was going to get it regardless until he actually rose. And I don't know if that's somehow in God's well, mysterious plan, but nobody, I mean, this is like a 100% failure rate. That, that is true. So, so that's what... <laughs> no, that's you're what, right. That, that, I no, want to be careful no and did, just, I no mean, one did get it. when Jesus says you're foolish, he may not be thinking of the same thing we're thinking when we call someone foolish. <laughs> Well, yeah, it is a hundred percent failure rate. Uh, well, the well, but the women. Now, wait a minute, ladies. The you see, we went over this last week when, when the ladies con- brought it to the men, they had both seen angels and Jesus. Right. None of those men had either, right. so we don't know that the ladies were really doing better. Because that report in Luke, the men had not seen an angel or Jesus, and the women had seen both. So also, this rehabilitates, well, this gives Thomas more good company when you really work through this, because Thomas hadn't seen angel or Jesus either. 
I suspect that all of us would have missed it too. Oh, I, I, you know, I, I have, have no gone. doubt about. I have maybe no so, doubt about maybe that. Maybe it's just emphasizing we need Jesus yeah. to help us understand the scriptures. Yeah, but uh, so so I, 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 John, I think is associating coming to a belief in the resurrection is on the basis. Uh, or a significant part of coming to the right belief in the resurrection is based on knowing the Old Testament scripture and and uh, what's going to happen during the 40 days is the lesson that Jesus gave to the guys on the road to Emmaus I, I expect that Jesus helped them understand him in the Old Testament during that 40 days and and uh, I think John is somehow alluding to that. Now, uh, let, let me let me get back in into the notes here. <clears throat> so, so John may be telling his his readers that his initial faith was good but not complete. His faith needs to be informed by the Old Testament scripture, which is going to take place. I've already said in the forty days. And uh, that's what ultimately makes the resurrection make sense and believable is according to the scriptures. The apostles all say that. Paul especially, when he talks about the resurrection, he's always going to point you back to the Old Testament to understand it because it's according to the scriptures. And so when we, when we preach the resurrection, we should, I mean, we should take a hint from that. You know, we're going to preach the resurrection, and it's not just all about evidential evidence. I, I'm all for all the evidential evidence, you know, you can bring. bring. Bring it on. This is historical reality, but it's not that. It's that plus, according to the Scripture, you see? And we shouldn't have some of these terrible apologetic fights that we have, I think, are, are ridiculous. Okay? It's right there. We've got all the evidential stuff, and yet, it's according to the Scripture, and our preaching of the resurrection should include both. And we're not compromising our apologetics by including both of those. Okay? So, sorry about that. Not, I'm not sorry about that. I feel pretty strongly about that. Uh, uh, so, Paul's according to the scripture, I think lines up with John's statement here. And I think it lines up with Jesus' instruction with the guys on the road uh, on, on the road to Emmaus. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, the, the, it's a zero, <laughs> Nathaniel, it's a zero, uh, zero got it. So that, that, that likely means that, that none of us uh, would have gotten it. I'm sure that does. So, okay. Oh, <clears throat> uh, well, okay. Any other, any other questions on that? Yes. Uh, we won't have time to do Mary Magdalene tonight. That's even got more difficult things <laughs> than this. Than this. Uh, Doreen. This isn't really theological, but there's accounts like the linens were just, like a, the body was just removed. They weren't unwrapped. And you've heard that Right. Oh yeah, and, and we know you know scripture? we know Jesus's image from the Shroud of Turin. <laughs> but is that not in the scripture? 
if not in the scripture, okay. that that's for sure. Okay. Um, You've heard that though. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I you know, there's a lot. I mean, the, it, we I we can't be conclusive. There's a lot of studying that's been done on that artifact, and uh, but why would I ever want to use that for an apologetic when I have a I have four historical, credible historical accounts, right? The Gospels, as well as I've got not only the historical account of all of this, I've got the theological underpinning of the Old Testament, the context to understand this. And so that's our strongest apologetic. And But yes, um, there's been some books written on that. Nathaniel, do you want to weigh in on the Shroud of Turin? Or would you please? <laughs> I would just say that... Where's the microphone? Very good. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That's Go ahead, Jake. Um, I was just going to say that I think there's really... like I like the comment where you said his initial faith was good, but not complete. His faith needs to be informed by the Old Testament Scriptures. I think that's really beneficial because I know in my own personal life, like I can have thoughts that may be in line with what God, like yeah. how he would want me to respond, but really bedrocking like yeah. that understanding in the scriptures, yeah. whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it just makes it something you can so much more reliantly depend Amen. on. Amen. And so, yeah, I just, it, as an encouragement for you guys, like I know that's going on in my personal life, and I'm very thankful for it. Yeah. So I just, I really like how you call that out yeah. of like just bedrocking yeah. your understanding and the truth of God's word. So, Amen. yeah. Hey, thanks for bringing up the good practical application. Yeah. I have it written in here somewhere, but I skipped it. So thank you. <laughs> I completely agree with what, what you're saying. But having said that, if there is something that would point to further ever evidence to yeah. corroborate, man, I'm all for it, right? Yeah. All truth is God's truth. So if something right. popped up historically or discovery, yeah. there's no need for us to... That's not that's not the essence of our faith, but it certainly could help support yes. it. Yes. Yeah, thanks for making making that clear. We'll, we'll take all the extra biblical evidence, the extra archaeological evidence, you know, and if they can dig up Noah's Ark, go for it. <laughs> that, that's all the better. Uh, <laughs> What's that? I, I see it. Yeah. What, what, what did he say? It's in I, Kentucky. I oh, it's in Kentucky. <laughs> oh, we're clever. <laughs> you guys, yeah, it is, it, is, it is in Kentucky. Okay. Well, uh, any, anybody else? Uh, Brian? I have a question. Um, oh, boy, you guys distracted me. Uh, about... Um, Oh, it was a really good one. Oh my gosh! Hey, you're too young for that to happen. Yeah, that's <laughs> that the thing. happens you guys to me five times young. a day. Um, oh, it had to do with your comment about what you talk about the Jews believing in a resurrection. There were two particular prophecies um, that I can think of. Uh, named prophecies about the raising of David and the raising of Elijah, and I was wondering if. Um, when a Jew is thinking of you know Elijah coming back because uh, it's mentioned in a couple of places, and then David, uh, the Lord raising yeah. up David to sit on his throne, um, is that what a Jew thinks of 
when he thinks of um, messianic coming, um, if they are pre-Messiah, you know, let's say in the intertestamental mm-hmm. period, or are they thinking of some other script- prophetic scripture? About Elijah must come first? Well, when I'm talking about, so Elijah died or was taken to heaven, and David died and was right. taken, where you know, buried. Um, so for them to come back, it would be a resurrection type of, of, a, of a situation. Um, I, would, I would think so. I mean, that they would think that way. Um, I'm trying to think where, uh, other than the Ezekiel prophecies, where would they think David was coming back? Uh, doesn't, I don't Jeremiah, I thought someone somewhere said, um, and David shall appear or something. Uh, or no, I, I, David shall reign over them. Okay. Um, and the Ezekiel prophecies refer to uh, refer to David reigning over a new Israel. Yeah. And, and I, don't I would understand that so. to be topology yeah, of course. to where the greater David is actually coming, not the literal David. A- but, amen. Yeah. yeah. I, I just want, if I'm a Jew in Israel and, and, and or on the road to Emmaus, and I'm thinking of the resurrection as Jesus wants me to think, like what scriptures am I... <laughs> Because it says he he mentions the scriptures. Well, there's a number of third day scriptures. Third day, okay. There's a number of references to third day. Jesus, of course, it would be hard to see. I mean, I have to admit, I I think maybe Jesus is a little too hard on us. But (laughs) but I, I say that reverently because without the New Testament, you know, I could read the whole Old Testament and... You know, there, there, there isn't explicit. You know, there's the third day references. Hosea has one of those. Mm-hmm. You know, on the, and on the third day he will raise us up. Mm-hmm. And Jesus invoked Jonah as Jonah. Jonah was three days and three yeah. nights, and no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah. You know, and um, hmm. I mean it's there, but it's but. Jesus came on pretty strong, you know. He beat those guys up pretty, pretty good. Okay, I, I was just wondering, you know, if I, because I, I think about it. I, I think Nathaniel they, probably has has more to say on that. There might be another explanation of what Jesus is doing. He might have been leading them along to reveal something later. Oh, I don't know. Well, he certainly does that. You know, what's the term? A mashel? What is the term? It's like a veiled saying. You know, Jesus certainly does that in, in his teaching. You know, there are sayings that are veiled, and you really got to think about them to, to you know, to, to get them, and that's intentional. And we're kind of going in different places. But even in the Old Testament, there, there is an intentional obscurity um, in the Old Testament about the prophetic gift. It's, it's interesting because... Moses spoke, God spoke with Moses face to face. All right? And that's the clearest revelation. And in that interaction, the Lord talks about his other prophets. I speak in dark sayings. And, and the whole idea there is the revelation given to Moses is really clear. But the other prophets, I give them dark sayings. There's like an intentional obscurity in the other prophets. Which, by the way, is a problem with a literal hermeneutic. <laughs> There's intentional obscurity. In, in, but, but Moses, why does God speak face to face with Moses in the common language? 
What, why do you think he's doing that? To show he's coming closer to mankind and there's going to be a greater Moses that speaks him. Because Moses is the type of Christ. Yeah. Right, but no, you're, yeah, you're in the ballpark there. Moses is actually the type of, as far as prophets go, Moses is the par excellence type of Christ. And what does he do? He sees God face to face. And God speaks to him clearly, you know. So there is an in- intentional obscurity, and and I, I, I yeah. Well, we're going to study uh, the Emmaus Road incident, Lord Lord willing. Uh, maybe we'll get there next week. So, anybody anybody else? Uh, okay. All right. Let's uh, let's pray. Our Father, we joy to uh, read these events uh, and, and in some way uh, relive them with uh, your uh, blessed uh, disciples, uh, the men and women on that Sunday morning, uh, Father, uh, and how we thank you for your wonderful word and scripture where we can have it all in front of us. Oh, Lord, uh, we, we have so much... And on top of that, uh, we're blessed with the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Uh, how, how wonderful that is. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for procuring uh, such a gift as your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, for us. Lord, give us, uh, uh, give us uh, uh, a boldness uh, to proclaim Christ and uh, give us wisdom and patience And uh, we pray these things in your great name. Amen.